We live in a broken world. I don't think that's news today. Uh, we, we live in a world that's broken. Even people that aren't religious, even people who aren't part of God's family through faith in Christ would agree we live in a broken world. They see solutions to a broken world that have not worked up to this point. Now, they see solutions in government policies or uh, conquering uh, bad actors with power. They see um, uh, they, they, they see all kinds of different social programs or philosophizing that will fix everything. And I get it. I mean, they're trying to find a way to fix a broken world. We live in a community. Uh, we live in a nation. We live in a world uh, that seems stuck in a quagmire of misery and pain, conflict, confusion, and chaos. That uh, quagmire really erupted in our uh, nation's uh, psyche 20 years ago. I know other generations have faced other things, but September 11th of 2001 was unique to us. As similar to Pearl Harbor in 1941, it, it was devastating. But it was also galvanizing. It was one of those events where tragedy and trauma brought us together as a nation. And, and it seemed like for a few weeks, maybe a month and a half at most, but for those few weeks, we set aside our petty differences. We set aside our quarrelsome uh, uh, conversations, and we were together, each one of us, wanting, longing, yearning to help the other, each one of us knowing that um, there was something for us to do. I think President Bush, in his uh, commemorative speech yesterday for Flight 93 that landed in the fields of Pennsylvania. He was there and he spoke. And one line of his speech went like this. He said, on America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. It was true. Again, if you lived through it, you know it was true. Churches were filled on that Sunday. You remember where you were 9-11 and if you lived through it. And, 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 and you remember being at church that next Sunday and how everybody, the churches were filled. And everybody was, was looking for answers. Everybody was looking for hope. Everybody was looking for and yearning for God to intervene. You remember that? Do you remember how short that lasted? How brief the span of time it was where people from all different cultures and ideologies and religions gathered together with a desire uh, for our nation to be made whole. Setting aside differences and political divisions, for a few weeks we were the America that President Bush described. 
I, I think that America is not unique in that. See, all the world from the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3 has been yearning for an answer to their hopelessness. Every, every generation of people from the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3, in every nation from the beginning of time since Gen- Genesis chapter 3, to the present day, even in the United States of America, is looking for a hope that the government cannot answer. It doesn't matter which political party is in power. They will not give the hope that is desperately needed by a world that's broken. I think part of our mistake sometimes, even in churches like ours, is that we begin to think that a political solution is the solution for hope in a nation or among a people, and the answer is no, that's not right. It never has been, and it never works. That's a temporary solution to a, an eternal problem, and, and, and we look to governments or ideas or social concerns to fix what's broken, and what God keeps saying is, he's saying, I've got the recipe and the ingredients to bring hope to a broken world. I've got a recipe. I've got the ingredients. I've got the plan. You might say, what's the plan? We are. We are. The church, this family, we're his plan. You might say, well, we're compared to the federal government or even the state government. We're such a small piece of the pie. How can we be God's plan to bring hope, to give a permanent answer to an eternal problem, not only in the seven cities of Hampton Roads, but also in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and also in the lower 48, North America, and South America, and Central America, and Asia, and East Asia, and, 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 and uh, Russia, and China, and uh, Europe, and Antarctica, and whatever else I'm missing. We're, we are God's plan A, this church. You say, well, we're so small. How can we do that? I want you to lean into a verse, and this is not our text today, but I want you to lean into the ver- this verse, and I'll, you're going to hear me say it over and over and over again. You know, God has designed this church, this family, to be a theater for his glory, to display the goodness of God's, of his love, so that we might give delight to him, that we might be a delight to one another, and that we might give delight to a broken world by giving them Jesus. And how can we accomplish so small in resource and small comparatively in people? How can we accomplish that? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, infinitely above and beyond all that we might ask or imagine, according to the power that is working in us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, through every generation, forever and ever, amen. You want to know how God can use this church to bring 
life-changing, soul-satisfying, heart-shaping hope to a broken world. It's by his power. By the power that he is working in us right now. By the power that he uh, longs to see come alive in us so that you and I, so that we, First Norfolk, we would be the theater of his glory, shining in the darkness of a broken world, giving life-shaping, soul-satisfying, heart-changing hope to a broken world through the love of Jesus Christ. I want to be a part of that. I don't want to just show up on a Sunday morning and sing a couple of songs, listen to a guy drone on and on and on, and then leave as though that's all there is. Guys, that doesn't even touch the tip of the iceberg of what God wants and longs for us to be a part of. When we say we are family, we are declaring that we are part of this grand vision that God has established for First Norfolk, this family, to literally change the world. And God says, I've got the recipe. God says, I've got the ingredients. I know many of y'all are jealous about the desserts that I eat if you follow me on social media. Aren't you? Go ahead and admit it. I, it's all right. I've, I've, I've seen some of your comments, rude. Right. Look, my desserts are a delight, aren't they? I mean, they might not be a delight to you because you haven't tasted them, but they're definitely a delight to me, and I share them so that you might long to have a taste of that delight that I get to taste all the time. And, and you, you've seen my desserts and, and what they, you know, usually it's a bowl of ice cream. You got that. You, know, you get a bowl of ice cream, throw something in there. And, and, and then peanut butter, you can throw a little peanut butter on top of that. And they, you know where peanut butter is found. By the way, I found these little squeeze bottles of peanut butter. Edie did those squeeze bottles. That's great for ice cream, by the way. All right. So, so you, you have ice cream and you throw a little peanut butter on there and chocolate sauce. You know how to get chocolate sauce. I mean, just simple Hershey's chocolate sauce. You know, just throw it in there. Now, uh, uh, delightful, but and sometimes you'll see that I throw a little M and M's on there, or maybe maybe a Snickers or two or three or five, uh, or a Reese peanut butter cup or seven or eight, and you see them uh, roll around that bowl, and and you see all that. But can I tell you the creme de la creme of every dessert that I ever make is found in something that Edie has made for me and my mother made for me before uh, Edie and I met. Uh, although Edie makes them better than my mother. And always has. It's called Congo Squares. Congo Squares. You might not know what a Congo Square is, but it's delight. It's delight to me. It's delight to anyone who tasted it, and it's a delight to anyone who would taste it. It is delightful. In uh, the Thomas Family Cookbook, actually a cookbook, Thomas Family Cookbook, there is a recipe for Congo squares. On page 14 of the Thomas Family Cookbook, it's called Jan's Congo Squares. My mother's name is Jan. She's the one who started out making these things. And, and, uh, and, and the tagline under Jan's Congo Squares, one of the most requested sweeties from Grana. That's what my children call my mom. 
And, and the recipe and the, and the ingredients are here for delight. One cup of melted butter, two cups self-rising flour, two cups of light brown sugar, one teaspoon vanilla flavoring, two eggs, one or two or three bags of semi-sweet or milk chocolate chips. Melt the butter, add brown sugar, stir well. Add eggs, blend well. Add flour and stir into a mixture until it is well mixed. Add vanilla and chocolate chips last, but make sure that the concoction that you've already made is cool. Because if you put the chocolate chips after you've melted the butter and it's still a little hot, then those chocolate chips will melt and you won't have Congo squares anymore. You'll have some swirly twirly kind of thing. Still good. Pour into a nine by 13 inch baking pan, bake at 325 for 25 to 30 minutes and be careful not to overcook and cut while it's warm. Serve on a bed of ice cream. Delight. And it's right here. The recipe, the recipe and the ingredients needed to experience that delight. In Romans chapter 12, what God does for us is he gives us the recipe and the ingredients for delight. Here's, here's what he says. He says to us that his plan to help a world that's broken, his plan to bring hope to a world that is stuck in a swamp of misery and pain and confusion and chaos and conflict is a church where members like you and me, we all find our place and fulfill our responsibility. God, God has called us not just to be spectators, but to be active participants in a family that changes the world. So that our church might be a delight to God. And obviously, that's the most important thing. God's recipe, his ingredients are you and me. And he puts us together in a special mix of divine design so that together we might bring delight to him. So that we might, in this family, be a delight to one another and so that we might give delight to a world that's broken. And guys, i got to tell you something. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you long to find your place as an ingredient in the recipe that God has written. It's, it, it, it's how God created you. God created you to be part of this family. <coughs> Pardon. God created you in Christ to be part of this family so that you would find your place and fulfill your responsibility. And so that this church might be a delight to God and a delight to one another and give delight to a world that's broken. In Romans chapter 12, we see the recipe and the ingredients, by the way. You're the ingredient, and we see the recipe. So if, if I'm the ingredient, what do I need to do? What is my place, and how do I fulfill my responsibility? What are those responsibilities? Well, the first one is we need to worship God through a lifestyle of service. So often we do, and we're here today in corporate 
worship, online, in person. We're here today in corporate worship, and, and, and this is certainly worship. But, but when we look at the way God defines worship, it's bigger and broader than sitting in a room and singing songs and listening to a talk. Worship is a lifestyle where we give all that we are to the one who has shown great mercy and grace to us. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Look at it. Paul has given for 11 chapters great doctrinal truths, things that will change your life if the truth gets hold your heart. And now, beginning in verse tw- uh, chapter 12, verse 1, he, he turns it and he says, now, here's what you do with all this stuff that God's given you through Christ. Here's how you live for God's glory, how the church is a theater for God's glory, how that we are a delight to him, how that we are a delight to one another, how we are a delight-giving group, family, even to a world that's broken. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service of worship. He's saying, listen, based upon everything that you've learned about who God is and how he has graced you in Christ, that's what, by the mercies of God. He's talking about how God in his grace saw you and me, a sinner, separated from him, a chasm far too wide for us to uh, cross, a, a mountain far too high for us to climb. And so he sent Jesus our way, the roaring lion who defeated death, hell, and the grave, who went to a cross to die for your sin in your place, who was raised from the dead so that we might live in the victory of his life. This is the mercy of God, not that we earned any of his grace, but that he gave it willingly, that today you're part of God's family, not because you joined a church. You're part of God's family because Jesus saved you. You are born again. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things are gone. New things have come. And all these things are defined and described and characterized by our relationship with God. You are now part of God's family and the king of the universe is your father. And you live in relationship with him. That's the mercies of God. And based upon those mercies, it is the reasonable act of a worshiper to say, God, you've done this for me. I give you all that I am. Everything, everything that I am belongs to you. And I give you everything that I am. I hold nothing back. And Paul says, here's, here's your place. Here's your responsibility. Here's a function. If you're going to be part of the family and not be the weakest link. Y'all know how the saying, um, a, a chain is only as strong as it's weakest link. You realize that the same thing is true in the church. The church is only as strong, the church is only as healthy as its weakest link. God help me, I don't want to be that weak link, do you? So we must give ourselves to a lifestyle of worship. Uh, uh, and Paul says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God, present yourselves to God a living sacrifice. You lay yourself before God and said, everything, my ambitions, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, my family, my relationships, my money, everything that I have, oh God, is yours. I live for you, for your pleasure, for your delight. 
It's a holy, sacri- uh, holy sacrifice. We give ourselves in holiness before the Lord. And, and when we fail to live up to God's holy standard, we immediately repent our sin and confess it and repent it and turn from it so that we might, might live in, in, in holiness before God. And, and it's not only a holy sac- uh, sacrifice, it's a well-pleasing sacrifice. Can I tell you that worship that pleases you but doesn't please God is useless? Worship that pleases you but doesn't please God is worthless. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if the motivation of your worship is to make yourself feel good, then you're not worshiping at all. Worship by its very design is me letting go of all of Eric Thomas and laying myself before holy God and say, I belong to you. So we need to stop defining worship by what entertains us, and we need to start defining worship by what brings God pleasure. It's well-pleasing to him. Worship God through a lifestyle of service means that I'm serving him. I'm sacrifice. I'm a sacrifice, a living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice to him. So the question is, are you fulfilling that responsibility? Are you fulfilling the responsibility of worship through a lifestyle of service and sacrifice. When we worship him, we find our place and we fulfill our responsibility. Secondly, we we need to uh, think differently and live differently. Part of our responsibility is not to be like everybody else who doesn't know Jesus. I said this in the first hour toward the end of this point, and I'm going to say it at the beginning so I can talk a lot and you'll forget it. If you believe that you living like every other Republican in your community is all that it takes to be a faithful follower of Jesus, then you've missed it. And I use Republican because most people in this room are Republicans. And Republican Party is viewed by some or most to be the God Party. But friends, I got to tell you, Republicans are not the God Party. The church is the God Party. And we are called to be different even from Republicans. And if that makes you mad, then you need to evaluate why. I mean, that's simple Bible. That's just simple Bible. We're to be different. No political party has a corner on what the church is supposed to be. In fact, the church is supposed to be unique and uniquely a voice that leads to change because we're pointing people to Jesus. The Republican Party is never designed to point people to Jesus. Neither is the Democrat Party or the Libertarian Party or the Kalamazoo Party. We're trying to find a political solution to an eternal problem. We need to stop it. We, the church, this family, God's calling us to act differently and think differently so that that we are a delight to God, so that we are a delight to one another, and so that we give delight to a world that's broken. The church is different. You and I must be different. Verse 2. Do not be conformed any longer to the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you want to know what we're supposed to be doing? 
We're supposed to be conforming ourselves not to the world, but to the will of God in every way. We're supposed to be conforming ourselves not to the mold of the world, but to the perfect, well-pleasing will of the living God. So the question is, are, are, are we living like that? The way we live like that is when we think like that, believe like that. You know the old, old, old saying, uh, uh, belief determines behavior. It's a true statement. The way, the way I believe determines the way I behave. If I believe that I'm a rat in a sewer, I'm going to behave like a rat in a sewer. Does that make sense? And again, this is simple truth. So what God tells us today is, I'm begging you by God's mercies that you become a living sacrifice, that you worship him through a lifestyle of service, and that you stop living your life thinking the way everybody in the world thinks so that you live the way, uh, way everybody in the world lives, and you start thinking the way a new creation in Christ is supposed to think so that you live the way a new creation in Christ is supposed to live. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And all these things have come from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And you're part of a new family. You have a new, new mind. You have a new heart if you're a follower of Jesus. So we've got to think that way. Now, the renewing the mind is how we get to start thinking that way. So we start living that way. It's a hard journey because there are lies that I've believed for a long, long, long time, and to give those lies up can be painful. But that's the journey of renewing our mind. The Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to the heart of the people of God so that we start living in concert with the will of God. That's renewing our mind. It's where we take uh, greater treasure and pleasure in the will of God than we do all the other treasures and pleasures of this earth. It's where we're not um, giving ourselves over to uh, the thoughts and the way of life of everybody around us, but rather we're measuring what we do and what we say and how we live and the places we go and the things we do. We're measuring that not by what all of our buddies are doing, we're measuring what we do and say and think and feel by what God's Word says, renewing your mind. And the beauty is that God has given us a family to help us. But you've got to be part of that journey. We are called to live differently and think differently. That's part of our responsibility. Our responsibility is to worship God through a lifestyle of service. Third, our responsibility, and it's not going to sound like it uh, should be top four, but it is. Our, our responsibility is to be humble. I mean, just, just, just dig into verse 3. So he's said these great truths, and then verse 3 he says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Don't think too highly of yourself. In other words, be humble. 
one of the greatest enemies to the church being a delight to God, a delight to one another, and a delight-giving family to the world is pride. And pride is the enemy of humility. I think, I think what God's saying is don't be an egoholic. Don't think you're the most important person in the room. And that's what happens in church. Y'all realize this, right? Uh, what happens in church? Well, the pastor's more important than the deacons. The deacon's more important than a life group leader. The life group leader is more important than everybody else. Uh, I, I've been in this church for 20, 30, 40, 50, 75 years, and therefore I'm more important than the person who became a member of this family yesterday. I'm 20, I'm 30, I'm 40 years old, I'm young. The old people, they've already had their time. This is my time, so I'm more important than anybody. But that's not how family's supposed to be. It's not how God has designed the church, and it's definitely not the attitude you and I are supposed to have. What kind of attitude are we supposed to have? We hear it when Paul talks about the attitude of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, he said, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, came in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue in heaven and on earth and below the earth should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus set the example for us. The creator of the cosmos, the king of the universe, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Guys, if Jesus was humble, who are you to be filled with pride? Especially in this family. Do you realize one of the marks of a healthy family of faith is where we consider the needs of others more important than our own needs? Hear that again. The mark of a healthy family of faith A church that brings delight to God, which is our grand ambition, brings delight to one another and gives delight to a broken world. That kind of church is where you and I, as followers of Jesus, each one, determine that the needs of others is of greater importance than my own personal needs. We got to be humble. Again, let's not be the weakest link in the chain. So we find our place when we, and fulfill our responsibility when we worship God through a lifestyle of service, when we live differently and think differently, when we are humble, and finally, when we do our part. You got to do your part. God did not put you into a family of faith called First Norfolk so that you could sit and be a spectator. Never designed that way. God did not plant me here so that I could do my own thing in my own way anytime I wanted to. Doesn't work that way. And by the way, what family and what family does that work? And it's a healthy family. You know what God did? God said, I have given you a recipe uh, for a church that brings delight to him, 
A theater for his glory brings delight to one another. It's a joy to be part of this family and gives delight to a broken world by giving them Jesus and showing them how to live in concert with Jesus. And that means you and I have to do our part. I want you to look at verses four and five. It says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, here, break, that's a lot of yada yadas. Let me break that down. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're part of God's family and in the local expression, First Norfolk, then we individually and together, we belong to God. Now, the, this church belongs to God, right? You belong to God. You've already made the commitment to worship God through a lifestyle of service. You, you, you're laying your life on the altar, a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, a well-pleasing sacrifice. You belong to God. This church, this family belongs to God. But more than that, verses 4 and 5 tell us that we belong to one another. Did you realize that we belong to one another? A body belongs to each individual part. This finger belongs to this hand, which belongs to this arm, which belongs to this torso. We belong to each other. My pinky hurts. It's been hurting since Edie and I went hiking through the Narrows. It, it, it hurts. And, and if I move it wrong, it hurts. You know what that means? It means my whole body hurts sometimes. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You got an ingrown toenail and it hurts. My goodness, it affects your brain. You have a headache. You have a migraine put you out for the count. You experience the elation, the joy of holding hands with the one you love. The whole body feels it. You, you experience the delight of your granddaughter saying, Poppy, for the first time. Hadn't happened yet, but y'all pray for that to happen. <laughs> the whole body feels it. What Paul's saying is, you and I, we are together and we belong to one another. So what you do affects me. What I do affects you. And we're all important in the body. You realize that in the Congo squares that bring delight, made by divine design, the chocolate chips are no more important than the teaspoon of vanilla. The teaspoon of vanilla is no, important, no more important than the flour. The flour is no more important than the eggs. There is not one ingredient that is more important than the other ingredients. In fact, it takes all the ingredients put together to make the delight. What God is saying is, you all, we have been put together all of us, right here, right? It's not an accident. This is God's design. You're the ingredient for this recipe, for this church. 
to be a delight to God, to be delightful to one another and to give delight to a broken world by giving them Jesus. We, you, we are essential. But have you found your place? The finger doesn't do what the tongue does. The tongue doesn't do what the brain does. The brain doesn't do what the uh, elbow does. Each part has a different part to play. And for some of us, we need to discover what our part is. Now, Paul described it in verses uh, 5, verses 6 and following. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let's use them. A couple of things. First of all, you have a gift of God's grace If you're a follower of Jesus, he's given you that. There's a spiritual gift that he's given you. But it's not a spiritual gift that you've created for yourself. He's given it to you. It's not something that you utilize for your own ambition or glory. It's something you utilize for the body of believers, for the family, for God's glory. So he says, he says, uh, uh, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given us, let's use them. Put them to work. Do your part. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is there that's not predicting the future. Prophecy there is preaching. God's graced you with the gift of preaching, then preach it. If it's ministry, Use it to minister. Ministry there is uh, utilizing, uh, is being gifted to, uh, to support the ministries that are part of the family. And that may be taking out the trash or it may be swapping, uh, uh, mopping the floor. It may be um, uh, holding hands with people who are going through uh, uh, sickness or illness. It, ministry can be a lot of different things, but it's, uh, this term describes all the ministries that lead to the upbuilding of the family. He who teaches in teaching, the one who teaches is the one that God has gifted by his grace to take the word of God and open it and apply it to the hearts of people within the family uh, so that the people who hear that teaching are, are led to Uh, uh, correction and reproof and instruction in righteousness so that the family members might be thoroughly equipped for the work that God has given us to do. He who exhorts in exhortation, exhort there means to come along somebody, uh, come alongside somebody, take them by the hand and lead them on a sure course of obedience and pleasure to God. Keeping, from, keeping them from uh, the ditches of disobedience or uh, rebellion, uh, holding them close and helping them every single day. That encouragement. He who gives with liberality. Giving here is a picture of a person given the grace of God, spiritual gift in the body of Christ, in the family, to be extravagant and generous with their finances. It's not talking about rich people. It's talking about poor people and rich people and all points in between. And the point is that God has called those individuals to express that gift by giving extravagantly and beyond what we would consider generous to advance the gospel and take care of people's needs in the family. 
He who leads with diligence. The leadership capacity here is the person who God has gifted by his grace to manage the details and the direction of the family. He who shows mercy with hilarity. Term mercy there means to uh, meet people at the point of their emotional, spiritual, and physical needs. And it doesn't drain me. I'm cheerful when I do. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to meet people at their emotional, physical, and spiritual needs and, and, and hold their hand through that process and help them see the glory of God in the midst of their pain and struggle. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of the gifts of grace that God gives us, but it is a description of components within the family of faith that some of us are going to fulfill. All of us need to look at them and say, am I doing my part? Really, when it comes down to it, I I wonder how many of us have settled for uh, just sitting and soaking rather than standing and serving for the glory of God. We've just decided that the best thing I can do is come show up, listen attentively or sleep a little bit when he goes extra long, leave and not even think about it anymore. Can I humbly suggest that if that is you, you're the weakest link in this chain? If that's me, I'm the weakest link in this chain. God has gifted you. Do your part. And as you do your part and as we do our part, then together we become a theater for God's glory. We are a delight to him. We're a delight to one another. And we give delight to a broken world because we show them who Jesus is. We are family. And my deep desire is for you to experience the joy of family called First Norfolk. Uh, In this same cookbook, uh, one of my daughters wrote a poem, and it's on page 51 of the cookbook. And the poem is called, I Am From a Family. She says, I'm from a city, Fort Worth, Texas. That's where she was born. I'm from the country, Vicksburg, Mississippi. That's where she spent some of her childhood. And I'm from the beach, Chesapeake, Virginia. I'm from the sweet smells of grana and mommy cooking fried okra, gumbo, and Congo squares in the kitchen. I'm from sharing clothes with my three sisters where arguing, yelling, crying, laughing, and joking is always present. I'm from treating everybody with respect, making Jesus smile and honoring my father and my mother. I'm from a wonderful family who loves me unconditionally, a family who will laugh and cry with me, a family that will never leave me by myself unprepared, and an eternal father who will walk with me every step of my life. My goodness, we weren't a perfect family but we were delightful. Do you realize God wants this church imperfect though we will be? He wants us to be delightful. 
For that to happen, you've got to find your place. You've got to fulfill your responsibility. Would you bow your heads with me, please? In these next few moments, I just want to challenge you. If you're here today and you're not yet part of this family of faith, maybe you know that God is calling you, leading you to be part of this family of faith. Today's the day for you to step forward and say, yes, I'm going to step out. I'm going to make the commitment. I'm going to be part of the First Norfolk family. There are going to be ministers here at the front who would love to walk with you through that journey. If you don't feel comfortable coming to the front, uh, in the lobby, there's a next step station. You can go to uh, someone there at that next step station and say, I want to be part of this church family, and they'll help you. Maybe you're here today, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you want to be. You don't know what to do or how to do that. Again, you can come to one of the ministers, and we want to help you become a follower of Jesus. Or you can go to someone at the next step station and tell them, I need to become a follower of Jesus. Can you help me? And they will. And some of you are here today, most of us. You're part of this church family, and yet you haven't been worshiping God through a lifestyle of service. Or you haven't lived differently or thought differently. Or perhaps you haven't been humble. You thought you're the center of the universe in the church. Or maybe... You're just not doing your part, or maybe you don't know what your part is to play. Today, would you have the courage and the commitment today as a follower of Jesus, a member of this First Norfolk family, would you have the courage to make the commitment and say, God, I will do my part. Show me what it is, I'll do my part. Show me, show me what it is, and I'll, I'll, I'll step out. I'll be obedient in worship. I'll be obedient in being transformed rather than conformed. I'll, I'll be obedient in and, and fulfill my responsibility of being humble, but God, just show me what my part is and let me step into it. This altar will be open for you to come, or maybe you want one of the ministers to pray over you about that very commitment. Lord God, this is a moment of response for your people, for those who you're drawing to yourself. I pray, oh God, that you would speak and that we would listen and that we would be obedient even in this moment, that even in this moment we would uh, worship you as a lifestyle of sacrifice. Now, oh God, grant us the vision that you have for this church, literally changing the world, and let us step into our place and do our part. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.